Welcome back to the Audio Cilantro Podcast. I'm Matt, and with me, as always, is Josh. And today we have a special guest. Uh, Brendan, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Uh, yeah, hey guys. Um, so, I work in the wine industry. Um, I'm a first certified sommelier and have a, the advanced certification with the Wine Spirits Education Trust. And I like to basically just say that I sling, sling grape juice for a living. But I guess professionally it would be, you know, selling and educating about wine and to lesser extent spirits sometimes. Nice. And a, and a mediocre golfer. Mediocre at my best, yes. <laughs> Yeah, we have a really cool podcast. I've, I've known Brendan for a while. Uh, we used to work at a restaurant together where he was my boss. Um, and he sold a lot of wine, taught me a lot about wine. We drank a lot of wine as well. Yeah, probably more than we should have. Yeah, that was kind of the shocking thing is that you have any interesting friends. <laughs> the problem with uh, all the wine tastings that me and Brendan did is I never remembered what I probably should have when I was taught because I was just hammered. <laughs> no. Yeah, but we had, we had a lot of fun. Remember remember that time when we went, it was on the rooftop and we did that wine tasting and that guy sabered that it's super expensive champagne. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, downtown. Yeah. That. What, what wine was that? That was oh, so good. The was, one that he busted open, it was like, yeah, yeah. tastes no, like Fig was, Newtons. I think it was a, uh, it, it was a cult that they just started selling that they just represented it might have been a champagne. I don't know. I know he had a crazy wine cellar. I don't know. It's crazy. It tastes like Fig Newton. Like oh, you're right. No, it was the old. I don't remember. You're right. There was like an, it was like an older vintage champagne. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Best wine I've ever had. Couldn't yeah. tell you what it is. Probably never going to get it again. But that's kind of what's cool about wine. You know, yeah. it's, every experience is like a little different depending on the situation too. Obviously, you're drinking, so it's like fun. Yeah. But when I always tell people, you know, my favorite part about it is that. It's kind of a good times industry, you know. Mm. There's very rare times where you're drinking wine and you're kind of just unhappy. miserable. Yeah. I mean, I've been miserable after drinking wine. <laughs> and Matt made a joke. Uh, the key is to not bring your work home with you. <laughs> yeah. Often. Because <laughs> do you? Well, how many bottles of wine? Because you you came in with like a little rolly suitcase full of wines. Yeah. How many do you have just like at your house laying around? Um, got it. I have to do the math on it, I think, you know, well over, and I think it's a fairly small collection, but probably like well over a hundred, probably more. So do you kind of keep like the drug dealer mindset where you don't, uh, you don't take from the company oh, supply? Yeah. yeah. I, take, I take the idea of, so you have to, you have to hook them, right? That's the most important thing is to get a repeat guest. So a repeat customer, I should say. So you give them your, you know better stuff in the first time get them hooked and then you start selling them the shit <laughs> the stuff you can't get rid of <laughs> um like try this one it's, it's really good <laughs> it smells like nail polish and it tastes like vinegar so primarily who do you serve to is like restaurants or yeah pretty much um pretty much restaurants bars hotels uh, i do wine shops as well pretty much all over the state cool well will you tell me a little bit about like the psalm process like how many levels there are of sommelier and then how do you say so is it sommelier yeah. sommelier I think you know I, I feel like I still say it correctly but sommelier is how I was sommelier so um, I think that the so the one that's most but there's several governing bodies for you know the certifications but I think the one that's best known is what's called the court of master sommeliers so uh, there was a, a documentary that they made uh, maybe 10 years or so that was called Psalm and it was about four guys that were taking uh, they were getting ready to take their Master Sommelier exam um, how much that, money do you make to be a Master Sommelier is it like crazy I think it, you know I think the thing about it is that just as a Sommelier you're, you're making good money you can definitely have a good lifestyle but it's kind of like anything nowadays that's more you build your brand so for instance you know we have one in Colorado Bobby Stuckey who now has a couple restaurants in Colorado that are very successful he's got Frost Cup in Boulder and he has Tabernetta here so it's a lot like being like a chef oh, yeah it's like, exactly how I think about it like you know if Gordon Ramsay was just a chef you know he'd be making a good living but his Gordon Ramsay's a brand now right because there's not a lot of master psalms and they're probably going to be world renowned you know if you walk yeah. up if you walk up to somebody and say you're a master psalm it's oh, like yeah. so how many master psalms are there is it like a handful or is there hundreds uh, I think there's give or take 300 in the world so um, throughout the process you you have to go through like tests right and get your certificate like psalm one psalm two yeah but, so so there's four levels and 
you know, we kind of say that every level goes up by tenfold. So the first level is the intro. Uh, and that for me really just feels like, um, it's kind of just, it's exactly what it sounds like, right? It's the introduction to the world. So it's kind of one weekend, you know, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday, money you spend, and it's taught by three or four massive sommeliers, and they'll basically run you through, um, you know, the introduction to the wine world. You get to taste 25 or 30 different wines, and um, they're, the idea is you're tasting wines that are, you know, classic representations of, of well-established areas, um, so kind of the areas that we talked about. Uh, and that's, you take an exam at the end, uh, you know, I tell people if you've never really had anything to do with wine. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, no, honestly, like if Matt, like Matt went to that, uh, to that course and basically paid attention and maybe looked at his notes the night, you know, after the night of the first day and then paid attention the second day, like he, he would pass that exam. So not to take anything away from it, but that's exactly what it's supposed to be. It's so pretty easy. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, it's a weekend. It's it's like taking a weekend course, and you take a test on, and they teach you everything in that course. You need to know to pass. Um, next little step is quite a bit to certified sommelier, which is what I've done. So that involves three different exams. So you have a blind tasting of two whites, and two reds. You have a service portion where basically you're in a mock restaurant setting and you're serving a master sommelier, and then you have a uh, a theory portion. Um, and they do the theory, actually do the theory and then the tasting and then the service after that and you have to pass all three to uh are you ever going to go for that next step uh yeah i think i'm going to start to trying to so i always said that if you're going to go for advanced you probably should plan on going for master because advanced steps it up so much more and then you know master again steps up to near impossible standards i think the pass rate for master song is like five or ten percent dang it's, like, it's harder it's easier to be like a professional singer <laughs> yeah i mean there's yeah when you think of how many like i said there's probably only about give or take 300 that have passed the master that's insane so um, and, and hold it up it's 273 oh, excuse me but there'll be 274 ah. <laughs> like even harder than yours yeah. yeah. Is it is it two, it's 273 total? Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. That is so much. And isn't there like a time stamp on it too? Like you have to be a, like when you're an advanced SOM or whatever the step up above uh, certified is, isn't there like 10 years? You have to be 10 years doing something? They, they used to have more of a, I think they used to Hold have on more it. of a stricter, you know, rules about it. But I think that they took some backlash and they kind of realized that, you know, it's, it's more about you know, the achievement than joining the club, I guess, so to speak. So, um, it, there's more yeah, like encouraged levels that they want to see that you, you know, serve in a restaurant or you've worked as a psalm in a restaurant. They want to see that you have some of that experience. But I mean, there's there are master psalms that have passed. I think the youngest guy is like 23 or 24. Holy crap! Yeah, I mean, he's like I think he was South Korea. He's from South Korea, or Japan. But he was early to mid 20s that he passed his master's exam, which is I mean, that's that's insane. So what's typical then? For the age? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you really are focused on it, you can do it in your late 20s or early 30s. I think, you know, it's a lot of it though is life gets in the way, right? I mean, it's you, it's literally, you have your full-time job and then you probably have to spend more time than your full-time job to actually get ready for the master exam. Huh. I mean, it's insanely intense. It's, I mean, it's getting a PhD in, yeah. you know, in wine, essentially, probably even harder than that in a lot of ways. But what I think is really interesting about, so if it's the PhD in wine, you can only really start your education once you can regularly drink. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. You know, I think you, I mean, you can read about it and you can learn, you can learn some of the service, but obviously, you know, legally you can't really taste until you're, you're 21. And that's for me, and I think for most of us, the tasting is certainly the hardest part. I mean, it definitely is. So I know at the beginning we said something about sabering, and I'm sure not a lot of people will know about it, but I know that you're excellent at it. I've seen you do it half a dozen times. One of my favorite things to do. Um, it's the only way to open up champagne now. Yeah, so so, <laughs> how would you explain it to a listener? Sure. So uh, sabering is basically you take, you take a knife, or an, it came from, you know, I, I think it came back from Napoleon's troops that used to do it after they – after a victory, they would saber bottles of champagne. Um, I'm sure it was before victories too. They're just uh, like sabering everywhere. You know, they probably did it after some defeats. Too, <laughs> they were French, so. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you that take would be the classic, right? I'm sabering before. You take the dull side of a knife and you kind of slide it at a perfect angle and pop the. And you can do it with a normal bottle. You can do it with a beer bottle. Yeah, you can do it with an espresso spoon. I've seen it done. Uh, 
Um, oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, basically, and there's a, so there's a, if you look closely to a bottle, you move uh, the neck label, and there's a seam where the you know bottle's been connected from when it was formed, and that's kind of a weak point of it. And I hold the bottle at a 45 degree angle. You take the uh, take the foil off, take the cage off, and just kind of adjust. I, I, I equate it to telling people like throwing a frisbee or whipping a towel kind of thing. <laughs> and that's the, the only reason why I bring that up is that's a requirement to become a master psalm. You have to do that 10 times in a row um, perfectly, right? Am I mistaken? You're, no? I, I'm 100% mistaken. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> that's the only portion of the test I'd get I right. I don't know. Maybe you are. I've never taken it. Maybe you know something that I don't know. I'm sitting here like that sounds wrong, but I don't know enough. High society. <laughs> well, he said it so convincingly that I had to look at him like, I didn't, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you. Let me tell you about it. Yeah, you just a bunch of guys in a room, just that's all they're doing. And he's like, oh, well, I passed the, pass the taste and I passed the syrup. That nice bottle, it didn't show that long. Yeah. It didn't stretch enough that morning. Yeah, could you imagine you pull a muscle while you're savoring a bottle of champagne? So I know a lot of people who don't know a lot about wine. And, you know, there's there's always wines that have corks or they're screw tops. Yeah. And a lot of people think that, you know, like a cork is indicative of a better wine than like a screw on cap would. Um, is there any truth to that? Um, nowadays, I would say not so much. Um, so where'd that come from then? So, the, I mean, the big reason they started putting screw caps, and I think Australia and or New Zealand were the first ones to really make it commercially viable. Um, the big thing was, A, cork was getting harder and harder to find. It comes from a tree, right? And it comes from a tree, yeah. I think most of the cork um, currently are come from trees from, from Portugal, I believe. Uh, and they... You know they're hard to export. There's you know wasn't a lot of it, and obviously there's more and more wine being produced, and so the screw cap makes it easier to produce the wine and to see it more affordable. More affordable, and nowadays they can they can adjust the I guess you could say the breathability of the of the screw cap or the really yeah. So there's so the metal's actually permeable. I think so. There's yeah. So there's you know there's ones that basically no oxygen gets in, and the idea behind that is that even with cork, there's a slight amount of oxygen that gets into the wine slowly over the years, and that's one of the reasons how it ages. And you know people say aged wine is can become great is that it slowly ages. So I think the idea behind the screw cap with that is kind of to mimic that mm. ageability, I guess. So what's the maximum? time that a cork will last oh it's i mean if it's if the wine's properly stored and it's a good cork and the wine will made it over 100 years dang they have there's a story in the you know there's a story of of them opening bottles from you know the 1890s they found bottles at the bottom of the ocean from shipwrecks that were intact um holy crap yeah so it's i mean could you imagine drinking that a, a wine round that was produced during the Spanish-American War or something yeah. like that. So, so you kind of brought this up, like you say that proper conditions, because I know that like lighting, air, because like the sun can ruin a bottle of wine, can't it? Yeah, I mean, the sun can ruin a bottle of wine in, you know, 30 minutes. Even even when it's corked and hasn't been opened. Yeah, you leave it in your car, you know, you run to the grocery stores and then you actually leave it in your car, it can ruin it. Um Oxygen is probably the main enemy of wine. But like wine wants to be vinegar. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, it's just turning into vinegar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and when you say it's corked, that means that it's so, so mostly cork, vinegar now. Well, right? corked actually is a term we use for a. a and God, my people are going to kill me if I remember this, but it's uh, basically a uh, almost like an infection of the cork. There's a if it's a, uh, a fungus or I think it's a, kind of a bacteria that gets oh, fungus. I, I'm going to sh- I'm going to literally get off this and, and I, remember <laughs> I remember it right away uh, it's basically the way it's basically an infection the cork rots kind of and then it, it causes that it you know cork wine smells like wet cardboard or mm. soggy dog or something else like that and it's funny because I actually don't have a great nose for cork wines but I have friends that will I'll open a bottle of wine and be like oh this is awesome can't wait and they'll be like this wine is corked it smells like a wet old dog so in order for the wine to age it has to have some amount of airflow then yeah it's, it's kind of, not just like it's like Goldilocks like so if it's completely airtight it's just going to sit there and be the same wine in theory yeah so I kind of wanted to bring up this other thing have you heard of the Spire wine bottle the Spire wine bottle so this is the oldest bottle of wine in the world apparently still drinkable that looks disgusting 
Well, it's not technically wine in the bottle anymore. It was sealed with wax, and that's why it was able to stay around for so long. Does that say 1700 years old? Yeah, it was uh, 325 AD. Holy cow. Kind of wine is it? <laughs> I, wonder what, I wonder what the vintage is. When a team excavated a Roman couple's tomb near the city of Spire, Germany in 1867. And I encourage the listeners at home to look this up. It's uh, S P E Y E R. It's the most disgusting liquid you've ever seen. But it's old and it's cool. I'd drink it. Would you drink it? I'd drink it. Why not? That's old wine. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, it says it's probably not alcoholic, but still probably safe to drink, so. So the alcohol just went away? <laughs> or morphed into something else. Yeah, I haven't heard of that. Well, as far as I know, like, the oldest good drinkable wine is, you know, over 100 years old. So. so that would be classified as an old world wine. And essentially all that means is, you know, whether it's made in Western Europe or the Mediterranean, I guess, would be old world. Yeah, basically we think of the old world as it's essentially Europe versus the rest of the world. Yeah. So the main, okay. I mean, we think of... France, Italy, Germany, Spain, Austria. Um, Jordan, Israel. No. No? We consider New World. Africa. Really? Yeah. Really? And that seems so old, though. Well, They've been making I, wine I mean, forever. I, yeah, right? It's, uh, I mean, I think. It's classist. <laughs> it totally is. And then the New World is United States, Chile, Argentina, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa. They're starting to make some wines. I think that would be considered New World. And, yeah, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. That's right, too, uh, Matt, you have any questions? Uh, yeah. So, being a sommelier... <laughs> sommelier? <laughs> How much do you drink per day? Um, you know, I, I honestly don't drink that much. Um, I think it's more of when we do drink, you know, because we'll get together and we have a group that will... We'll do theme nights, you know, we'll definitely... We said we're not going to open bottles that are newer than 2010, and... We'll do like a burgundy night, and then those nights are kind of where we, we hit it hard. But you know, night night tonight, I live by myself, so I actually don't really drink much wine by myself because wine can be expensive. And I don't want to drink alcohol, <laughs> you know, either be forced to drink all of it or you know just have it by myself. So um, for me, it's more about when we decide it's enjoying it more than just having it here or there. That being said, if you want to taste and you want to get better. You know, like when I'm studying for my exams, yeah, I'm tasting five to ten wines a night easily, and that's probably not much, you know, until you, unless you want to get up to the uh, advanced or master level. You've got and you don't have to just pop it open. You can use this cool gadget. It's called a Corvin. And what a Cor I think it's Argon Air. Yeah. So Argon Air is inside these little canisters, and you, you poke a needle down into your wine bottle through the cork. Obviously, it won't work with a screw cap. But you poke it through the cork, and you can pour some pretty awesome wine, so, and it won't go bad because the argon doesn't affect the wine. So you pretty much replace a glass of wine with an equal volume of argon gas, that's and it cool. keeps your wine. It's really cool, so you don't have to open it because that's always the problem, right? You open yeah. a bottle of wine, you're like, well, i got to drink all of it now. <laughs> Down the hatch. Yeah. So if you ever do want to try tasting it, get a Corvin. I think it's like 100 150 bucks. They get pretty expensive if you get really nice. Ones. Yeah, but the new ones are probably two or three hundred bucks. They've got like Bluetooth ones now too. <laughs> what? Or I guess if you're driving home, you can Bluetooth your Corvette and say, "I'd like a bottle of you know, Burgundy waiting for me." And then you go and saber with all your buddies. Okay, Alexa, get a bottle of. <laughs> can you Corvin champagne? No. You can actually. There's what? I haven't seen it yet. I haven't used it, but there's a Corvin for champagne. Oh my gosh! Because I was gonna grab my bottle of champagne and try that because matt you're pretty novice when it comes to wine uh probably have had it less than 20 times in my life hmm. just because i'm mostly a beer guy sure yeah it's because like wine and other spirits to a degree but i feel like you know gin and whiskey even that's a lot easier than wine yeah the wine is so much harder to approach 
it's pretty daunting. Me and Matt actually went to, we went on like a climbing trip and we drove out to Vegas and I won some money. So I took us out to a baller dinner and uh, got a bottle of wine and just even like I have very rudimentary. I, I know what I'm looking for, you know, yeah. but they, you know, you go to a nice restaurant, they give you the wine list and the wine list is bigger than the menu by a lot. And you're just like, it's like a, it's like a novel hmm. Itself. And then you end up just looking at the price. <laughs> that's what I do. I'm like, hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. And that's what you do for a living. You, you literally like they had a Psalm there and I was telling, telling them that I knew a guy and you're the guy. <laughs> he was like, what's his name? I probably knew him. I was like, oh, there's a whole community. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but you just got back from France, right? Did your company send you there? No. So I was a, that was a uh, trip with some buddies. So we did a, kind of a lifelong, you know, a trip that I wanted to do. We did Alsace. Um, we spent a few days in uh, Lyon. Uh, a couple of friends wanted to do a bike ride. Altoise, I think it's what it is. Anyways, if you're a cyclist, it's a very famous, like, kind of a once in a lifetime ride. But so we did Alsace for two days, and then we stayed for a week in uh, in Burgundy, in the heart of Burgundy, and then we did two days in Champagne, and then we flew out. And it was it was life changing. Tell me, tell me about those cellars. You went in them, right? Yeah. So in in like Champagne. Yeah. Yeah. So we went to Moet Chandon, which is I think they were. 1748, 1746 is when they were founded. Um, but yeah, they, they're the ones that are famous for the you know the miles and miles of cellars underneath, you know, underground. They, it's like something like 17, 18 miles of cellars of like literally just stacks of bottles of champagne. It's all like limestone, right? It's yeah. all temperature controlled, crazy yeah, awesome. Like, right, right, yeah, it's like a perfect temperature to store and age champagne, and there's like perfect amount of humidity. Yeah, there's just miles of bottles. It's amazing. To That's see. crazy. Are they super old? Or are they just aging their normal retail bottles? Both. I, think, I mean, they have them from you know probably hundreds of years ago all the way up to you know the batch that they just you know made last year or so. And they just opened up something in California too, didn't they? But they can't call it Champagne because it's not made in Champagne. Yeah. Uh, I think. I mean, there's a Chandon, California. Is that what you're thinking? Of? Yeah, and they make Moet Chandon Champagne. So yeah, and so champagne is a protected wine. term. It's a legally protected term, so it can only be made in the region of Champagne in France. And it's there's um, certain grapes that you have to make it from. And there's a process that's kind of the main part of it called the method Champenois that you have to make. They rotate it, right? That's the riddling. Yeah. Oh, the riddling. It, but, hmm. Yeah, but they still have to do the riddling for champagne until they get the keep the wine clear and get the yeast out of the neck of the bottle because it settles yeah well that so the whole idea between the method champenois is that the, there's a secondary fermentation that happens inside of the bottle and so i mean so normally in a fermentation process the carbon dioxide escapes into the atmosphere well if you're mm-hmm. in the sealed bottle obviously it's not going to escape so it dissolves back down so they're the fermenting the wine inside the bottle yeah it's a secondary fermentation yeah so that's what they're creating the that is so bubbles. neat. That is so neat. It's cool. It's really cool. That is really cool. And champagnes are my favorite type of wine as well. Oh yeah, it's just always drink champagne. It's just great. Yeah. It's just great. Um, cool. And you get to savor it. And you get to savor it. And you get to spray it on everybody. Yeah, you get to put it with sharp objects. It's just great. So there's not really a. It's just because the region that you can call it champagne if someone copied the process or is the process itself? Uh, so the process itself is used all over. So like in California, like Chandon, um, most of like the... Uh, but they would have to be sparkling wine. Yeah, they call it California sparkling wine. Got it. Yeah. There's a there's some some wines that are made kind of that are grandfathered themselves and you'll see them called like California champagne, but those wines I don't think actually can be exported to Europe because I think... I think Champagne's actually protected by the European Union. Cool. Uh, yeah, so I was wondering, back to what I said earlier about how, you know, you can't really start learning this as a kid. Yeah. Um, how, how did you get into this? Because I can't imagine, like, a small gel. I've always wanted to be a wine expert, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know? I don't think there's a lot of us growing up that, you know, you know, at six years old, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be a master sommelier. Exactly. Um, I think a big difference, though, in the United States, you know, we can't drink until we're 21. And even in most states, even with your parents' consent, a lot of places you can't try wine. Uh, whereas in Europe, 
A, the drinking age is a lot lower, and B, it's much more traditional for, you know, even the kids to have a taste of wine or a glass of wine with their parents, so. But yeah, how I got into it is I was working in restaurants after graduating from college. Just kind of, you know, what am I gonna do with my life kind of thing. You know, I graduated in 2009, and uh, you know, things weren't exactly the best for the economy then, so. Yeah. Starting to work in a restaurant and uh, trying to get things together, started managing the restaurant shortly after they, uh, one of our managers left, and they asked me if they wanted me to run the bar and wine program and kind of without thinking about it, I would, you know, like put my hand up and say, yeah, I'll do it in a heartbeat. And then just slowly get more into it. Yeah, I basically was like, well, I'll figure it out at that point. Um, and so, but they actually sent me to take the level one quartermaster's on the ace course at the, at the Broadmoor. And it was just one of those things where I took it, I just kind of fell in love with it. I had always really liked kind of history and geography, and that's a lot about it. It's basically what learning about wine is. So, so there is a use for geography. There is totally a use for geography, yeah. So going back to the testing, um, that was something else I was kind of curious about. I feel like uh, the surface and theory parts are somewhat self-explanatory. Yeah. But how does the blinds tasting work? Because I read up a little bit on that, and that shit sounded impossible to me. Yeah. So. The blind taste, and the blind tasting is, I think, where most of us have the most issues. It's certainly where I have the most trouble. It's the most perishable skill of, you know, the three. And and to kind of go back, you have to have the baseline of theory right first, which I think with the master exam, you have to pass theory before you do service and tasting, because everything goes back to theory, right? So even if you're tasting correctly and you're being able to pull out all the nuances of the wine but you don't know why they make certain wines or certain varieties in certain regions, you're not gonna be able to get the tasting right, essentially. So um, everything goes back to theory and understanding the kind of why certain grapes are grown and certain wines produced in certain regions. But basically what they do, and it's, it's, it's exactly what it sounds like, they, they don't blindfold you, <laughs> but they do, um, you know, the, the proctors will pour for, you know, for the certified level, it's two whites and two reds. I think for advanced and masters, both three whites and three reds. But you basically walk into a room, there's three whites and three reds. And at the certified level, you you write everything down. So you'll say, you know, color, you know, color appearance, um, aromas, taste, structure, um, you know, those kind of things. Whereas when you get to the advanced and the master level, you actually have to do it verbally. So you, there's no eraser at those levels. So if you say like the wrong thing accidentally, it's not like, oh, I'll just go back and erase it. It's like, shit, I already said that. Um, but yeah, basically you just, you know, look at the wine, smell and taste it. And, and uh, hopefully you've tasted enough wines to be able to remember, you know, similar things and be able to say that, yeah, this tastes like, you know, an Alsace Riesling or a Burgundy Chardonnay or, you know, an Australian Shiraz or something. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's, it's a skill like anything else, right? It's like playing an instrument, you practice the better you get at it. Some people are have a gift and they're much better at it, but you can definitely practice and get better at it. So, Brendan, will you uh, tell Matt kind of what words you use to describe wine? Because I always found that, like, when you taste oh, yeah. it. So we, have, so we jokingly have a, uh, you know, kind of a, a joke that you can describe any wine by saying, oh, it's, oh, it's light, fruity, you know, good acid, great long finish, you know, um, very approachable. You know, you can kind of make these terms up, but <laughs> um, but I think the most important thing with when you're describing the wine is to get the get the aromas right, when you're smelling on the aromas, but also the structure, because I think structure is the most important thing. So, so we talk about structure. Yeah, sorry. So when we talk about structure, we talk about body, which is essentially how heavy the wine is. So think, does the wine have the same heaviness as like water, or is it like heavy cream? Oh, okay. Um, and then acid is essentially how much does Nikki salivate? That's the easiest way to understand it. And no, so, Matt, cat piss is not a way to describe it. <laughs> well, it might make you salivate, though. Uh, and it's just a Josh thing. And then alcohol, you know, how high or low is the alcohol? Um, I mean, wines can range from 5% on the low end to, you know, four to five wines are up there in the, you know, 19 to 20%. Wines, most still wines are seven percent to really fifteen on the high end as far as percentage points. So, and then for red wines, we talk about tannins, and I I describe tannins as the peanut butter sensation you get in your mouth. So like, how much does it make you kind of like that kind of sure? Kind of thing, so. 
Um, but the reason why I would say we, I shouldn't say I would say, but you know, they say structure is most important is because that's really how you kind of describe the gist of the wine. So yeah, I kind of have to get that one most right, I'd say. And I've heard at the master level, you have to pick out the exact region in the year. Oh yeah, so uh, I have a good friend of mine um, who we took our certified exams together. He says that at the certified level, so let's say Denver, for example, at the certified level, you know Denver, you know some of the neighborhoods, um, you've got an idea of that. At yeah. the advanced level, it's you know Denver, you know the neighborhoods, but now you know all the streets within the neighborhoods and all the nuances within them of the streets. And when you get to the master level, it's like you know all of Denver, you know all of the houses and all the neighborhoods and all the streets in Denver. So it's just, like I said, the amount of knowledge you need for the certified exam is the amount of knowledge that you need for just sort of one region at the advanced level, if that makes sense. The regions make sense to me, the year doesn't, because I could kind of see like, oh, the grapes were grown in a different soil, so they have different flavors based off of that, but yeah. how, how does a year taste different? Uh, I think a lot of it is, uh, I mean, so it all goes back to weather, right? So it all goes back to, you know, when we say, oh, it was really warm vintage, so, oh, okay. um, or if they got a lot of rain and the, the fruit might have swelled and might not have had as concentrated of flavors. So let's say there's a massive heat wave, will you be able to taste that? If the heat wave is so bad that it destroys the grapes, it won't matter because they won't make wine out of it. But if it's, you know, they might say, oh, it's a really warm vintage in that, or it was a really hot vintage in Burgundy. So you can, and, and again, it's still a little bit of a guessing game, but a lot of it is, again, going back to theory, knowing, okay, 2015 in Burgundy was considered a very hot year. You know, if you taste a Pinot Noir and you're like, well, this tastes, like riper fruit than I would expect from a burgundy wine, but maybe it's 2015 because it was a warmer year, so the fruit got riper than I'd expect. So that's kind of so that changes like harvest times or hard harvest and times might change how much oak they put on the wine, how much they how long they leave the wines on the skins. A really interesting wine that comes out of a freeze would be ice vine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it only usually only comes out of Germany and some parts of Canada. Yeah, and and what I learned from it was it has to be really particular. So it has to be during harvest, and they get a late freeze, yeah. and then when it freezes, it actually changes the sugar content in the grape chemically. So they actually go out like what the next day or something like that, and they yeah, harvest they it. Do it at night. Yeah, it's like you know negative six or negative ten degrees. Yeah, and they make a dessert wine out of it that they call ice wine, or if you're German, it's ice wine. Yeah. <laughs> if you ever tried toilet wine, I, I haven't even heard of toilet wine. Is that where they really make wine in a toilet? Yeah, you know, like the prison wine. Okay. So any type of fruit juice or whatever, and uh, they get their yeast from like dinner rolls. What? Fermented, yeah. Huh. Interesting. And then what do they do? They make wine in just yeah. the toilet? And then just like age Well, like a plastic bag. That is like, so gross. Well, you're in prison. <laughs> like Doesn't change it to me. Yeah, of, of course it's foul, but like, you know, you're bored, you want to get drunk. I was going to say, I think at that point they're going more for the effect. Than <laughs> yeah, that. yeah, it's not like... I know. Mm. <laughs> I think it tastes like, like if a song can taste like different, like this this smells like Pelican Bay, but I actually think it's <laughs> <laughs> San Quentin. <laughs> Something like that. There's a lot more sediment in here than there yeah, should be. Like, oh, this, this is Rikers all the way. <laughs> yeah, it changes the sediment. <laughs> yeah, there's some floating. <laughs> well, I mean, they store uh, it in the tank. Uh, like, to answer your question, you know, I have not tried to that one. I'm only kind of disappointed about that. Well, we made some today, so. <laughs> I'm cautiously interested in it now though Let's yeah see. well uh, yeah we got something for your follow-up episode now yeah, toilet go. wine yeah we can do just <laughs> odd, odd spirit and alcohol making procedures around the world the botulism episode oh god <laughs> that Gosh, sounds terrible first oh great yeah you're definitely trying that one first <laughs> going back to the age stuff when i'm like what's the oldest one you can drink yeah why is age such an important part of wine culture? So I think a big part of it is, um, so there's two parts. There's the, the classic, you know, thought that a lot of aged wine tastes better, and, and a lot of it does. So, you know, I think traditionally you would say, you know, most Barolos and Barbarescos from Italy, a lot of 
you know, traditionalists would say it needs 20 to 30 years to age. And um, that doesn't mean you can't drink it. It doesn't mean it's not right. It just might be at its peak, you know, at 20 to 30 years from now. And I kind of like to think of wine as, I don't think there's this just this scale where it just goes up, 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 hits its peak and goes down. I think there's this, this it's kind of like these ups and downs and dips a little bit. And that's like, like Dom Perignon has this kind of idea with their, their plenitude. They have these wines that, you know, they say they kind of have a second awakening, if you will, where they they taste their peak after this amount of time, and then, you know, the third one to the taste at the peak at this amount of time. So, but a big thing is that, so when you taste the most young wine, you're gonna get much more of what we call like primary characteristics, or like like fruit, like they'll smell fruitier, right? As the wines age, and I, I they kind of relax a little bit, they tend to get more secondary and tertiary characteristics. So, you know, secondary characteristics more of the winemaking process, so, how much oak they use on the wine, you know, whether they're destemming the grapes, um, you know, it's, uh, other other things that they can do with the wine, you know, like lees stirring. So lees stirring can give you that kind of like toasty brioche smell in wines. Um, so when you say how much oak they use in the wine, what does that refer to? Are they like throwing that in with the fermentation, or is that the barrel they age it in? Yeah, and actually, yeah, it can be both. So traditionally, uh, you know, wines are aged in French oak or American oak, um, but like, you know, like bourbon, uh, bourbon's aged in new American oak. So uh, the newer the oak, the more it imparts flavor onto the wine. So the- Unless it's been used. Exactly. Yeah. So like the first brand new French oak, you're gonna have the most characteristics kind of put onto the wine. So they actually reuse barrels to get different flavor characteristics in different wines. Yeah, absolutely. And then you can also, you don't have to use barrels. You can use stainless steels. You can use concrete eggs. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. It's yeah. like toilets. the oaks just totally traditional. <laughs> oaks, oaks the most traditional, yeah. Um, and like I said, most French oak and American oak are probably the most well-known, but there's Hungarian oak, there's Slovakian oak. You know, so the main things you get off of oak are um, vanilla, caramel characteristics, things baking spices. And that's from the tannins, right? It puts... um, yeah, a little bit. So there's there's oak tannins and then there's tannins from the skins. I I don't tend to pick up on oak tannins as well, and maybe I'm just not as good at separating them. Hmm. For me, I happen to be pretty sensitive to oak though. I can I feel like I have a good sense of A if it's new oak, B if it's American or French oak. I say that and I'm gonna embarrass myself in the States now, but um, but and then a lot of producers use a combination. Maybe they'll ferment in stainless steel and agent barrel, or you know, kind of the opposite. Um, I think there was a master song. I think it was Brian McClintock that said, "Oak is like, it's like sugar in your coffee. If the wine's too bitter, if the coffee's too bitter, a little sugar's great, right? It makes it sweet or it makes it kind of taste the way it should. You put way too much sugar in coffee, and it tastes really bad. So that's kind of I think how most people think of oak." But when we talk about how much oak is there, we're talking about how much new oak is on the wine, because that's really what's imparting the flavor on it. So it's like more of a flavor profile thing than we put this additive in there. Kind of. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, I I mean, I don't like to say it's an additive so so much because you have to age the wine somehow, and you have to age it in some of its air title, it's an oxygen. this is the way that they do it to kind of get the most sought after. Aromas. I, I taste it. I taste the oak most in like a Chardonnay. It's like the difference between what somebody would consider a buttery Chardonnay versus not buttery. Yeah. And, and the easiest example to ask to look at Chablis versus either, a, you know, a Cote de Bone Chardonnay or a, a kind of a classic Chardonnay. So for, for those of you who don't know, Chablis is a region in the northern part of um, Burgundy all 100% Chardonnay and traditionally they do very little to the wine so traditionally it's they're not doing malolactic fermentation they're not doing oak aging it's in a lot of ways it's Chardonnay in its purest sense and if you taste it it's highly acidic it's got more of these like green apple underripe notes to it and then when you get a little bit warmer like down into you know the heart of Burgundy they're doing more barrel fermentation so you get those baking spices those toasty characteristics to it they do a little bit of what's called malactic fermentation, where it, it, that's kind of how you get the texture, a little bit creamier of the wine, if you will. <laughs> so you can dig, and that's why, you know, Chardonnay and Riesling, I think, are two of the coolest whites, because you can have the exact same, you know, grape grown into different areas, and they taste vastly different from each other. 
I think they found the first, I'm, I was just thinking about this while you're talking, but they found the first recorded making of wine in like in the Egyptian area. Yeah. And I, just the old world, new world thing just pisses me off that the whole oh, Mediterranean is included. Yeah. I don't well, know. I think, I don't think it's their, when we talk about it, I don't think it's supposed to be like a, I know it's, it's just, more just a way to separate the wines. It's just now. funny to me. It, I think definitely in this new, in this day and age, it could sound more offensive than it's meant to be just based off of their traditions and not so much the actual like age yeah props bro props gotta give props so (laughs) why is there so much hype around french wine from like what little i've looked at this it always seems like people look down on the newer american wines yeah but i've heard also that they've been getting a lot better in the last few years so yeah i think that and i don't get me wrong i love french wine i think the big thing behind that is they the french and italians are always competing for kind of who produces the most wine every year i think it switches back and forth um but they uh they've been doing it for so much longer you know essentially united states from you know other than i'm sure with some native americans were doing you know, our history of winemaking is only 100, 150 years old, but they've been making wine for thousands of years. And so I think that's a big part of where it comes. But the, fun, the other thing that's about it, I mean, you go back to 1976, if, when they had the Judgment of Paris, you know, an American Chardonnay beat out, they tasted an American Chardonnay against several, you know, Burgundy Chardonnays in America, one for the 1973 vintage of Chateau Montalena. So kind of put America on the map. Big ups, huh? Yeah, right. And there's there's a movie they made about it called Bottle Shock where they talk all about it, but you know, that's really where I think the first international recognition of American wine came in. And, you know, the, the cool thing about the United States is we, we're not, you know, so to so say handcuffed as much as what we can make. I mean, we can plant essentially wine wherever we can grow it and make it however we want. You know, in Europe, much more of it is this variety can be planted here and you have to kind of make it there's a lot more traditions and it, yeah roadblocks yeah, so, yeah. And, and that being said like you can get a lot of like there's a reason though right where Cabernet grows in certain areas where Pinot Noir grows in certain areas and it does better there so like you know we can have more experiment in the United States but sometimes we can grow a wine here and we're like yeah it's kind of shit so kind of like junction wine it's very <laughs> rudimentary absolute favorite yeah, yeah. It's it's they they do I don't know you I, I have one here like it because you're from there I have one here that we can try okay but uh, it's not like hey, the best you know, in fifty to hundred years <coughs> you know Grand Junction will be an ABA and on the <laughs> hopefully that's one of my dreams is to go out there and start a vineyard I think yeah. that'd be the freaking dream even if it's shit like wine change turns Junction into the wine paradise <laughs> it could awesome. it could and gets a little bit more water yeah. Um, but one of the stories I, I really love about New World wine is uh, Kim Crawford, how he, he came out with his really baller. Uh, by the way, sorry, I don't know everybody, Kim Crawford is a, is a large man. He is not a female. Most people think Kim Crawford is a... So, like, when I have people, you know, ask me about wine, one of the things to kind of find out is, like, hey, can you, what do you think of Kim Crawford? And they say, oh, she's great. I'm like, okay, this guy, they have no idea what they're talking yeah. about. Him, my, oh, you're good. <laughs> my, my only big flex in wine really is like when people like Kim Crawford, because it's a very popular wine, but yeah, he actually sure. sold out. And for, what was it, 10 years, Kim Crawford, the actual guy, couldn't make wine for 10 years. Yeah, I think it was. Um, yeah, okay. In the contract, like when he sold Kim, his, he sold his name and his wine. Yeah. And then when he came out of that 10 years, he started, uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, that new uh, love block, yeah, and love block is just baller. I love love block. It's it's like cheap, but that's what I tell people. Like especially when I was bartending, well, they'd be like, of- "We want a Kim Crawford. We like Kim Crawford." And I'm like, you know, Kim Crawford doesn't even make that. He makes this one, yeah. and this one's badass, especially with oysters, you know, and totally. all that stuff. So that's one of my little flexes, and that's probably my only flex in the wine world. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just like, I know about my wine. I feel like it's hard to flex in the wine world. The more I find out that I'm about wine, the more I find out I don't know anything about yeah, it and how much yeah. it's changing and, yeah. and evolving. So Josh, you mentioned uh, pairing well with oysters. That was another question I wanted to ask. Like, How do you know what wine pairs with a certain male? So there are a lot of, there are some scientific there's some, there's some scientifics. There's a science behind it a little bit. Um, some of it is trial and error. And that's part of the theory? 
A little bit, yeah. So, I mean, think about the, the best example I can say is why does orange juice taste so bad after you brush your teeth? Science. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, no, that, that, that's a good visual term. Yeah. Unofficial. Good comparison. Yeah. It's, but I mean, it does, right? So if you drink, if you if you drink orange juice right after you brush your teeth, it's super bitter. It's tart. It's disgusting, right? But if you drink orange juice with your before you brush your teeth or with your breakfast, it's delicious. It's light. It's refreshing. So what wine pairs with? Brushing your with teeth. No. <laughs> Is that where we're going with this? I like champagne to brush my teeth. I know it. No, there's definitely some. I mean, it's so it's very similar to food. Like, why does salt make food taste better? It just brings out flavor more, right? I found that wine kind of it. Like, if I, if you get a steak and you get a nice big red wine to cut through the fats. Yeah. I found that it's not really the wine enhancing the flavor. The wine is cleansing my palate and almost making that next bite new. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what it is. So, and what, what you're talking about is the tannins. So, um, when you eat a when you eat a steak and, you, and let's say it's a fattier cut, like a ribeye, um, that fat, while it gives the steak flavor, it also coats the inside of your mouth. And Taste kind of, buds and everything. Yeah. So it kind of acts as this barrier against the the next bite you have. Um, Kind of like, you know, like when you have a bite of steak, like the first bite is always the best. Yep, yep. The next one, you don't taste as well. What, what like a tannic wine does is it, it'll basically wash in your mouth and it'll rip off that, that fat that's coated your cheeks. And so that way the next bite that you have is kind of back to being like the first bite. Essentially it's so like that with oysters. Are you using it as a palate cleanser usually, or are you ever trying to make it additive? Um, I, you can use it as both. Okay. Think, you know, um, I'm huge into like trash food and wine pairings. I think it's really fun. So like one of my like greasy burgers. Yeah. <laughs> so like one of my favorite pairings is champagne and ruffled potato chips. <laughs> and I, I, yeah. And I was say, well because the bubbles bounce in between the ruffles of the chips and it's a new sensation in your mouth. But I, I mean honestly, if you go taste it, go drink, go drink a really good champagne with like ruffled potato chips, and you'll be amazed how good it is. Yeah. Um, there are some certain rules that like um, acid goes with acid so if you have a highly acidic food you need a wine that's just as acidic otherwise the wine will feel like uh, nothing yeah it just won't have much flavor it won't have much taste to it um, they say you know your dessert your wine should be as sweet or sweeter than your dessert otherwise again it'll taste the wine will taste too bitter so there are rules that really are like there's some science behind the why and I always tell people it kind of goes back to blind tasting. When you're out at a restaurant, you know, and we're ordering our food, you pick out, let's say you pick out something you've never tried before. You have kind of an idea of what you like, right? There's certain things, like I won't eat pickles, so I'll never eat anything with a pickle in it. But there's some things that I'll try and be like, okay, this is fun. But when you taste and you're like, oh, this is good. I really like this. And you don't think about it too much beyond that. But like, and, and that same thing goes for wine. You say, oh, I like this wine. It, or it goes well with the food. But with food, you can dive into it deeper and say, oh, this sauce is really good. I wonder what's in it. You know, is there, is there parsley in it? Is there thyme in it? You know, is there, you know, some other ingredient that I can't quite identify? So then that's kind of the same thing we do with wine is just try to think about it a little bit more or a little bit more in depth and say, I like this. Why do I like it? Or I don't like it. Why don't I like it kind of thing? Hmm. And I think that's a big part of being a song is understanding, especially if you have a repeat guest, understanding their kind of palate and what they enjoy and recommending something that will be the right bottle of wine for them. Cool. So, and so you have to like be a little more individual than just have this one with this meal. Yeah, I, I mean, there are some hard set rules. That they, I mean, so there, there are classic pairings. Like you know. say you run into some weirdo who's like, I'm all about toothpaste and orange juice. I would politely but firmly <laughs> ask them to leave the room. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that you would ask more probing questions at that point. Yeah, like, you know, maybe yeah. they're just messing with you. <laughs> but I think there are some kind of hard and set rules that kind of have been agreed upon with things that do well with each other sort of thing. Yeah, again, I always, for me, the easiest way to understand and to describe to other people is going back to food. You know, again, would you, you know, would you mix gravy with your ice cream? <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. somebody does at some point, but naturally, well, when you contextualize it in that way, it, it makes a lot more sense yeah. instead of just like 
Like Some mystery work. liquid. Yeah. You know. So that's that's I like to equate it to food, so I think it's the easiest way for people. So in Silence of the Lambs, Dr. Hannibal Lecter says, I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Yeah. What would you personally pair with human flesh? Oh, with human flesh? Well, it depends on the cut. Are we doing a fattier cut? Well, I, I actually have <laughs> some tasting notes for you. For flat human flesh? Oh, uh, yes. Are they your personal tastes? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there it was. <laughs> his name's William Seabrook. I wrote some books about tribes in Africa who practiced cannibalism, but he actually lied about it, but then came back to the U.S., obtained a sample from a hospital and ate it. Yeah. So I'll read you the quote. It was like a good, fully developed veal, not young, but not yet beef. It was very like that and was not like any other meat I had ever had. It was so nearly good, fully developed veal, and that I think no person with a ordinary palate of normal sensitiveness could distinguish it from veal. So there you go. Okay, so basically, basically, <laughs> how did you pair it with veal? Um, the funny thing is, I think Chianti would be a great pairing for that. Um, I think so they did their homework. They did their homework a little bit, yeah. I think you could pair, veal, veal's a little, ten, is a little fatty, right, am I right? Am I gonna mix up? I don't fucking know. <laughs> Let's say, I mean, so, I mean, the easiest red wine to pair with that would be Pinot Noir, because I think Pinot Noir is a very, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? You can pair it with a lot of different things. I think Chianti would be great with it. Um, if it's not as fat, I wouldn't do something that has really high tannins, because you want kind of fat to go along with the high tannins. Um, another thing that actually might be great for it is something like a, something like a, a Northern Rhone Syrah, or even like a, like a Chateauneuf de Pop, which is kind of Grenache Syrah and Vendra blend. Um, I think either of those would be would be great with it. Also, if they're like smoking the, <laughs> like, if it's smoking, you can do it with the Syrah because Syrah is really nice, especially Northern Rome. It has this nice like uh, smoked meat, bacon fat. So when eating human meat, preparation matters. Oh, absolutely. For all you cannibals. Well, so I'll give you another example. Of that is that when. Uh, I worked at a seafood restaurant, and we we still sold way more red wine than white wine. And you don't have to have red wine with white or with fish. Sorry, you don't have to have white wine with fish, but it tends to go better. So my favorite question is: if somebody ordered like a all of the lightly sautéed, you know, halibut with just salt and pepper and olive oil, and then they're sitting there drinking like a cup, and they're like, "Wow, my fish really doesn't have much flavor." And I kind of go, "Yeah, you don't say," because the wine's overpowering. It's overpowering it, yeah. It's interesting. Same thing if you had a ribeye and you were drinking like a nice Sauvignon Blanc, you might be like, I don't taste any of this. Like, oh, well, yeah, the, the ribeye's, you know, out of the line. So you're trying, always trying to balance it somehow. Yeah. So I mentioned Silence of the Lambs. What's your favorite depiction of wine and media? Uh, well, we were going to talk about this a little bit. Um, I mean, if you want the most accurate one, the Saul movies, but that's a documentary. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it'd be embarrassing if the documentary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that's a good question. I'd have to think about. There's, there's a movie that came out recently where they were. It's a guy who, you know, it's a fictional movie, but it's about him wanting to be a master song. He's, they, they show him like blinding wines, and he's getting down to where he can, he can guess. Oh, this is this producer of this wine. It's like that's pretty far fetched. That's like, I mean. Especially for master psalms, getting being able to call the village right of, or the exact region right with the vintage, that's highly doable. Well, Calling a producer, that's pretty. I, I think it's funny that they feel the need to even try and exaggerate it because just saying you're a region, that's insane to me. Yeah, you know. Well, okay, so I'll give you a great example. It's probably one of the best known ones. I don't think a lot of people know this. Is so the movie Bottle Shock, Paul Giamatti, right? So his prized possession in that movie is a wine called Chateau Cheval Blanc. So Chateau Cheval Blanc is on the right side of Bordeaux. Um, so the right side of Bordeaux tends to be Merlot-based. The left side of Bordeaux tends to be more Cabernet Sauvignon-based. And he talks about several times in that movie about how he hates Merlot. You know, he's got that thing that's like, no, I'm not drinking Merlot. Um, and the, you know, the, the contradiction there is that his prized possession of wine is, is predominantly a Merlot wine. 
So I think, and you know, there, there was always a question of like, did the author do that intentionally to kind of show Miles' juxtaposition of himself, or you know, was it just kind of a, a funny coincidence? I don't know, but I think that's a really good kind of showing of um, of wine and media. Obviously, if, has anyone seen? Have you seen the the Hannibal TV show? No. Oh, it's awesome. It's about uh, Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. yeah um, but they, he's cooking food and doing wine drinks and that all the time. They do a pretty good job of it in there as well. And uh, I saw this in The Last of Us, too, was the rabbit meal with uh, Bordeaux. Oh, yeah, in the or second what, episode. What did say? I don't know. The, I don't know if you've seen The Last of Us, but uh, in the second one, the... This, the yeah, you'd say got to watch it, but he... Yeah. He had a lot of wine, and he was just chilling in the apocalypse. He would just make, he'd pair wine with all these crazy foods he'd make. It's yeah. just him. And then eventually, just pointed out to me that like he even does the pouring correct with the label facing his guests. Oh really? Yeah, he would present bottom. it. Yeah. So they did their work on the research on it. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. Well, it was to show like you know this hardcore survival guy yeah. had a more sophisticated classy sensitive side and okay you know instead of just i'm a prepper who eats beans from a can yeah <laughs> funny story we uh i so screaming eagle is a very famous very expensive wine from napa valley it's, the most expensive right it might be i mean it's certainly um in production i guess yeah i mean it's probably the most famous napa expensive wine i mean i think we have it on our list for Twenty-one hundred bucks, twenty-two hundred dollars, and a and a guy ordered it, and uh, I was going after a table of like eight or ten. And at one point, I I uh, spilled like a drop or two on the table. And I was like, well, there goes three or four dollars. Oh my god, <laughs> so that was really funny. I was like, I think I worked a hundred dollars. That's insane. Yeah. How how does the price get so high with wine? Is it just they make so little of it, or is it the age factor? Or um, I equate it to are are we paying for a brand? Yeah, <laughs> essentially. So I equate it to also how much of it do they produce? There's a practicality of it, right? So if you're a new wine producer, you know, let's say you're, you want to buy some real estate in Napa Valley, Napa Valley is expensive, right? I mean, it's probably a million dollars an acre now, certainly half a million dollars an acre. Um, so in order to make that money back on that investment, you probably have to charge a decent amount of the wine for the wine that you're making from that area. Um, as far as some of it's also like the growing. Like, yeah, I mean, there's a practicality to it. As far as the wines that you know that have been around for a long time, it's how much they don't produce, and just over time they've gotten this reputation of just being, you know, like the classic example from France is Domaine Romney Conti DRC, which just can go for five to ten thousand dollars current vintage of a, a bottle of wine. And I feel like there's just a market, kind of like art, where you look at art and you're like, that's stupid. But like somebody paid a million dollars for yeah. it. Yeah. It's just kind of like, good, right? yeah, you, yeah. So when you see me in 10 years, Matt, and I bring you to my wine cellar, I'll be like, yeah, that wine's garbage, but it was $5,000. I, so I could afford that. It. Yeah, I could afford that. It's so much like American bourbon, right? Like why is, why are some bourbons yeah. so highly sought after? You yeah. Make much of it and just traditionally, it's like, oh, this bourbon's really good, but same idea it probably price, tastes the same yeah at some <laughs> price point I'm like there's you, like this wine can't be any you're kind of doing some of it for clout <laughs> totally um, so what, what's the tipping point for that then uh, like does price actually have any equating to quality or is that just not I'm even sure to a certain anymore? point right yeah I would say a lot of it does but that's you know a lot of that comes into why you would uh why you'd want to use a sommelier at a, at a restaurant is for them to, because a good sommelier is going to sell you a good bottle of wine that's expensive, but the best psalms understand that the price is not the most important thing. It's getting somebody the correct bottle of wine for what their meal. Um, but there's definitely more expensive wines do tend to be better, but there are plenty of wines that are 10 or $15 off the shelf that are outrageously delicious that you would drink, I would drink all the time. And then there are some wines that are three or four hundred bucks that I had. I was like, this this is awful. There's way too much oak on this. It's not ready. It's too big. It's gross. So uh, do they throw you a little bonus if you trick someone into buying the $2,100 bottle? Sometimes they'll the table, like, <laughs> leave us a little slash of it or something afterwards. But at the end of the day, you know, Screaming Eagles and Napa Valley Cabernet, um, it's cool. It was, a, it was a fun bottle to serve. It was great to, you know, to serve to the guests. But I've tasted so many Napa Valley Cabernets that... 
personally, it, you know, it wouldn't be my first choice, but, you know, if you can afford it, it's a cool bottle that you rarely see, so why not? Best mass market wine? Mm. Or are there no good ones? No, there are plenty. I just don't, for employment's sake, I'm not sure if I should <laughs> say um, good uh, ones. Yeah, yeah, that, that, well, that's fine. That's I mean, fine. I, think, I think, you know, the big names are there for a reason. You know, I created two, like, Bob Clico is, you know, America's favorite champagne. Um, that's the number one selling champagne in the United States. I kind of equated to, you know, which, if you were a, a sporting goods store, would you carry Nike and Adidas? Of course, right? They're the, they're the big sellers, but they're also generally thought of as being quality, good equipment. I mean, going back to what you said about Kim Crawford, Kim Crawford was always a good, for me, it was an excellent representation of what a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc should be. So I think those are good. I think, you know, like Robert and Dobby's Reserve Cabernet, I think is a really good, and that's one of those wines that like, that wine could easily be four or $500 a bottle and it's not because they own the property and they don't have to charge that much. They probably could. A lot of the wines that I enjoy are, are actually like crafted into what they are. And those are called blends. So like this one right here, it's called Papillon. And then I have the prisoner right there. And those are blends of different grapes. Yeah. And it actually takes like a person like you, right? Like a master psalm or somebody tasted the wine and they actually go through and critique it to get it to what it is. And they try to reproduce that same taste with the same mixture and there's so many variables that go into it it's like an art one again going back to it's like cooking you know <laughs> yeah and again going back to getting something the right bottle of wine or the correct bottle for the occasion the right bottle for me might not be the right bottle for you or Josh or you know or somebody else so you know if you're if, if you're just trying to have a party and you just want some alcohol and you want to buy a box of wine like that's the that's the correct box of wine for that occasion I really like that sentiment that there's not necessarily a best wine, but there's the right wine for each occasion, and that's where the sommelier comes in. If you've made it this far, thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next week with Revolutionary War Submarines. If you've enjoyed this topic, stay tuned for the part two in which Brendan takes us through a tasting.